Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Hey ho, let's go, constant listeners. We are back for our second episode of Pet Cemetery. We are the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. You tuned in last week, we hope, for the first part of our Pet Cemetery episode, which is turning into an epic. And uh, if you haven't listened to that yet, you should really go back because we're going to be obviously referencing a lot of the things we said earlier in the pod. And why would you listen to part two before part one? That's just really weird. So we're going to go around. It's the same crew, but we're all just going to go around and reintroduce ourselves again before we venture into the cemetery to talk about the spooky shit. My name is Randall Kitty Cat Colburn. <laughs> and who is sitting across from me? This would be Michael McMack. Yeah, Rothman. there we go. There and who's next to you? Uh, this is Mel Dead Meat Castle. Ooh. I like it. And uh, Lil Justo, who are you? This is Justin Johnny Ramon Gerber. (laughs) I almost did Didi Ramon (laughs) for mine. So yeah, like I said, if you haven't listened to the first part of this episode, we talk about the history of the book, we break down the themes, the hook, the structure, the format, and our heroes and villains, or zeros and villains, however you want to go about it. It's heroes. It's heroes heroes and villains. We could be heroes just for one day. Okay, cool. So the gates are creaking. The cemetery is open. Anything to say before we venture in? Uh, my shovel is getting heavy because I've been holding it for all week. <laughs> so really can we just go in already? Yak, yes. Yak, yak. We're going in into the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because... Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Ooh, I can feel that shiver down my spine. Ladies and gents, we are in the cemetery. The wind is howling. 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 Maybe even laughing? Maybe even laughing. And there's something large just beyond the trees that oh, we cannot see. You hear it. If you hear anything strange, don't worry. It's just a, it's just a loon. Just a loon. It might Sound be a carries. loon. Speaking of, I'm going to kick off the cemetery because even though you make fun of the loon stuff, I find some of that section very spooky. And I'm going to read uh, a section that gave me a little chill down my spine. Mm. And that is when Judd is first taking Lewis uh, to the Micmac burial ground. He says, you might see St. Elmo's fire, what the sailors call foo lights. It makes funny shapes, but it's nothing. If you should see some of those shapes and they bother you, just look the other way. You may hear sounds like voices, but they are the loons down south towards Prospect. The sound carries. It's funny. I don't, I wasn't making fun of that. I said, I I thought it was all effective. I was just saying, maybe it doesn't have to be in the book Pet Cemetery. That's all I was saying. I just like it. I think the image of... A St. Elmo's Fire video box floating in front of me would also be very terrifying. <laughs> that's one of my least favorite movies of all time. 
Sorry, no, go ahead. it's just like the idea, like just the way it's phrased too, because it doesn't sound like Judd. Yeah. It sound, you know, it's like well, written in sort of this halting speech. And just, um, but you know, just if you should see some of those shapes and they bother you, just look the other way. Like the idea that these amorphous shapes, which he can't articulate, if they bother you, that is such a creepy sentiment to me. And those words and expressions carry on to Judd later on. Yeah. I mean, to uh, Lewis later on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like such a freaky, freaky moment. Um, it gets me. But uh, who else has something spooky they want to share? Um, there's a little foreshadowing here that's a little, little dark in its humor. Um, it's, it's after Eileen. Her name is obviously after Ellie falls from the tire swing. Lewis says, all right, Ellie, that's enough. Those people over there will think someone's being murdered. I thought that was a little funny and grim. I don't know. I thought it was a funny bit. Yeah. Wait, why are you putting funny stuff in the cemetery? Well, it's also kind of creepy. Because somebody does get murdered yeah. later on. Oh, good point. I had, I had another kind of one like that when Ellie says to Paul Bear Lewis about carrying Norma's casket. She says, don't drop her. Yeah. yeah. And that to me is the same sort of like, it's so grim and it's a literal foreshadowing because Gage's casket gets knocked yep. um, off its oh, yeah. base later. I didn't even think about that. Like similarly, I like just in the vein, because I think pretty much a lot of, I have a lot of cemeteries, but. But the uh, it was it's always that path to the Micmac burial ground is where the creepiest stuff lies for sure. me, and uh, when Judd is talking about going to the pet cemetery with Stanny B uh, and re- recalling when he was taken there when he was a young man, um, I just thought it was also freaky when he's like, after a while, I started to get the funny idea that old Stanny B was gone, and I was following an Indian. Following an Indian and somewhere farther along, he turned around all grinning and black eyed, his face streaked up with that stinking paint they made from bear, bear fat that he'd have a Tommy, Tommy Hawk made out of a wedge of slate and a hake of ashwood all tied together with rawhide. And he'd grab me by the back of my neck and whack off my hair along with the top of my skull. Mm. But just like... But just I think the part that's freakiest to me, though, is just that concept of confusing, you know, this like drunken kind of guy who is taking him out there. Just the the person's countenance changes in such a way and reality starts blurring a little bit. And suddenly you are seeing like the spirit of this Native American. And it's just that's a very creepy sort of thing because it ties together. It You know, that whole idea of of this being very old, like whatever we're witnessing is something that is living and changing, but also very old. I think the earliest moment for me. Right, legit was terrified. Again, goes into the premonition that I thought was just, just a random ghost. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it. on page 35. He took Gage up the stairs, walking through hot, slanting September sunshine. And as he reached the landing, such a premonition of horror and darkness struck him that he stopped, stopped cold, and looked around in surprise, wondering what could have come over him. He held the baby tighter, almost clutching him. And Gage stirred uncomfortably. Lewis's arms and back had broken out in great rashes of goose flesh. What's wrong, he wondered, confused and frightened. His heart was racing. His scalp felt cool and abruptly too small to cover his skull. He could feel the surge of adrenaline behind his eyes. Human eyes really did bug out when fear was extreme, he knew. They did not just widen, but actually bulged. His blood pressure climbed, and the hydrostatic pressure of the cranial fluids increased. What the hell is it? Ghosts? Christ, it really feels as if something just brushed by me in this hallway. Something I almost saw. Downstairs, the screen door whacked against its frame. Louis Creed jumped and almost screamed, and then laughed. It was simply one of those psychological cold pockets people sometimes pass through. No more, no less. Because I feel like we've all had those moments in the house where something just doesn't feel right, and you don't really know why, Mm -hmm. and you kind of just shrug it off. And for me, granted, this 
is a callback later on because then he realizes that was a premonition of yeah. all the events that were going to happen. But taken randomly, especially you as a reader, for me, it really did set the tone. I mean, granted, the tone of this book is set, you know, beautifully when King has him pull up into the house and everything's chaotic in the back seat and Lewis is just losing his mind, the bee sting. I mean, just fucking crazy when they first get there. But that moment is where you realize that something else is really a play. And I just, for me, that is an image that has stuck with me out of all the books I've read of Stephen King. Mm. It's just something that really haunts me. And it's something I think about constantly when weird things happen in my house. And I'm yeah. just like... And you're not bullshitting. You've brought that up to us multiple times. And Soul's Midnight, yeah. So no, I, Yeah. And, I've, and I've, yeah, I bring up this, this passage, all, passage all the time. And I, I just think it's the way he writes it and the way he keeps it vague and very personal and very intimate is is just great writing, and it mm-hmm. still terrifies me, even though knowing that it, there's a reason for it. It's still effective. Yeah. Even, even if you know there's a reason for it, there's still something in the premonition that is somewhat spiritual. Yeah. So you, do you get, like, flashes and you don't even know what they are? Like, when I have experiences like that, I'm usually like, fuck, is someone in the house? Or, like, yeah. what was that noise? Yeah. You know, it's, it's more specific than, like, oh, this weird cold premonition, and, like, I don't know how I would deal with something like that. It, it's specifically the line... Christ, it really feels as if something just bu- just brushed, brushed by, by me, me in this hallway. Something I almost saw. That line right there is just a dagger to my like my heart. It's just like oh god, like it, it just it scares the hell. He out looks of me. down the steps. He looks at the doorway. It's uh, Bill Cosby, <laughs> Ghost Dad, Ghost Dad. <laughs> god, that'd be more scary than the Wendigo itself. If it was just Bill Cosby, it'd be scary. <laughs> yeah, I've got it's it's unavoidable. It's Pascal's the description of Pascal's fatal injury. Nice. Uh, let me read this. If you don't mind. this is gross everybody (laughs) this is gross half of his head was crushed his neck had been broken one collarbone jutted from his swelled and twisted right shoulder from his head blood and a yellow pussy I I, I keep reading that over again pussy fluid seeped sluggishly into the carpet oh by the way Lewis is spelled L-U-I-S in this section in my book I want to make put more of that Uh, Luis could see the man's brain, whitish gray, and pulsing through a shattered section of skull. It was like looking through a broken window. The incursion was perhaps five centimeters wide. If he had had a baby in his skull, he could almost have birthed it, like Zeus delivering from his forehead. Good Good lord! Lord. (laughs) Good Zeus! (laughs) Mel, what do you got? Disgusting. I got um, Judd describing how Spot is when he comes Mm. back. I got on my knees and hugged him. I was so glad to see him. Then he licked my face, and Judd shuddered and finished his beer. Lewis, his tongue was cold. Being licked by Spot was like getting rubbed up the side of your face with a dead carp. And then he goes on to talk about how Spot never liked being bathed. And this is a line that I think Mike has quoted to us before. That day, Spot just sat in the tub and let me wash him. He never moved at all. I didn't like it. It was like... Like washing meat. I got an old piece of towel after I gave him his bath and dried him all off. I could see the places where the barbed wire had hooked him. There was no fur in any of those places, and the flesh looked dimpled in. It is the way an old wound looks after it's been healed five years and more. And then I saw his head. There was another of those dimples there, but the fur had grown back white in a little circle. It was near his ear, where your father shot him, Lewis said. Mm. Yeah. Eek. (laughs) Eek. I have another one that kind of deals with the unexplained. See, the, the moments for me in this book are the ones that aren't explicit, it's the ones that you kind of, he just infers a little bit and it isn't just, it's just, you kind of wonder what was there. Mm. This is in, on page 113. That night as they slept in their house and as Judd lay wasteful in his, there was another hard frost. 
The wind rose in the early morning, ripping most of the remaining leaves, which were now an uninteresting brown from the trees. The wind awoke Lois. <laughs> Lois. 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 The wind awoke Lois. <laughs> and he started up on his elbows, mostly asleep and confused. There were steps on the stairs, slow, dragging steps. Pasco had come back. Only now, he thought, two months had passed. When the door opened, he would see a rotting horror, the jogging shorts caked with mold, the flesh fallen away in great holes, the brain decayed to paste. Only the eyes would be alive, hellishly bright and alive. Pasco would not speak this time. His vocal cords would be too decayed to produce sounds, but his eyes, they would beckon him to come out. No, he breathed, and the steps died out. He got up, went to the door, and pulled it open, his lips drawn back in grimace of fear and resolution, his flesh cringing. Pascal would be there, and with his raised arms, he would look like a long-dead conductor about to call for the first thundering phrase of, and I'm going to screw this up, Walpurgisnacht. Sure. Yeah. Walpurgisnacht. No such oh, the thi- German? No such oh. thing, as Judd might have said. You should know. <laughs> the landing was empty, silent. There was no sound but the wind. Lewis went back to bed and slept. That section is friggin' sweet, Lois. Friggin', friggin, friggin sweet, Lois. Sweet, Lois. Um, speaking, kind of in uh, along. Speaking the, of friggin' sweet. Uh, well, yeah, for, speaking of friggin' sweet, kind of along the same lines as um, Mel was talking about Spot coming back. Um, the I find a lot of the Timmy Baderman section very spooky. Yeah, yeah. But this section in particular really got me. Um, just the description here of of Timmy. Um, well, we got there and Alan knocked, but nobody answered. So we went around to the back and there were two and there the two of them were. Bill Baderman was sitting there in his back stoop with a pitcher of beer and Timmy was at the back of the yard, just staring up at that red bloody sun as it went down. His whole face was orange with it, like he'd been flayed alive. And Bill, he looked like the devil had gotten him after his seven years of highfalutin. He was floating in his clothes, and I judged he'd lost 40 pounds. His eyes had gone back in their sockets until they were like little animals in a pair of caves. And his mouth kept going tick, tick, tick on the left side. Just Judd paused, seemed to consider, and then nodded imperceptibly. Lewis, he looked damned. Yeah. Yeah, the dad is more scary than the, because like, mm-hmm. he's been living with Timmy and, ugh. Yeah. What's that word again, damned? Which reminds me of um, Nadine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah in the yeah. stand, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that's just a, a little one off that Pascal says as he's dying, as he's saying all the stuff about, all the foreshadowing about the, the stony ear and everything about the stony heart. He just says, engine, bring my fish. Yeah. Because obviously the whole. It's jarring. It's just, what? Yeah, uh, it, that really, I, I wrote here, it's one of the creepiest things I'll read in the book. Yeah, because it's, it's just it, so, what? And well, then it's never really alluded to again. No. Obviously, the burial ground is Native American based, but that's such a specific line, of, like a specific spirit coming through or something. Exactly. That's what I'm going back to. Yeah. Who is Victor Pascal yeah. to Lewis at that point? Is exactly. it some other spirit that maybe escaped the the that spiritual realm and is trying to warn them? You know, it's... You know, the fact that you never know is great. Yeah. Just to keep on the Pascal train right there. On page 144, King writes, At some point he slept without even being aware that he had gone over the edge. It must have been so, because as he slipped away, it seemed to him that he heard bare feet slowly climbing the stairs, and that mm. he thought, Let me alone, Pascal. Let me alone. What's done is done, and what's dead is dead. And the steps faded away. And although a great many other inexplicable things happened as that year darkened, Lewis was never bothered by the specter of Victor Pascal again, either waking or dreaming. And now in hindsight, that section is even more terrifying because 
you know, yeah. Pascal is supposed to represent something good. He yeah. refuses him twice now, though, because yeah. that you read this other section where he's like, no, go away. He yeah. doesn't yeah. want to see him. So he's like banished twice over. I feel yeah. like in the movie after that sequence, Lucifer looked over to the right. Pascal would stand there and says something like, you're not going to get rid of me that easy, Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> 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 I had the part, this is what um, caused me so much terror as a kid, was the bit after Rachel talks about Zelda Mm. and the aftermath of how she can't deal with the trauma. This is on page 278. For months or so, she told Lewis, it had actually been years, eight of them. Afterwards, she would awaken from nightmares in which her sister died over and over again. And in the dark, Rachel's hands would fly to her back to make sure it was all right. In the frightful aftermath of these dreams, she often thought that the closet door would bang open mm-hmm. and Zelda would lurch out, blue and twisted, her eyes rolled up to shiny whites, her black tongue puffing out through her lips, her hands hooked into claws to murder the murderer cowering in her bed with her hands jammed into the small of her back. I have that exact passage mm-hmm. written. You know what I thought about with this is the monsters in the closet with King, yeah, with Cujo and Frank Dodd, and even in my favorite Gordon Lachance story, Stud City, where he imagines his... Um, I think it's his father in the book or his brother in the book coming out of the closet as a zombie yeah. saying it should have been you, whatever. And the same thing with uh, um, the boogeyman in Cujo. Yeah. Uh, the and, Yeah, yeah, Frank Dodd, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, the boogeyman, the short story. Mm-hmm. Um, along those same lines, I just want to hop on, like, right before Rachel dies, like, when she sees Zelda, uh, Gage as Zelda, this section, like, really friggin' terrified me. Think about that. Not about the dreams you had as a kid. Dreams of opening the closet and having Zelda spring out at you with her black and grinning face. Dreams of being in the bathtub and seeing Zelda's eyes peering out of the drain. Dreams of Zelda lurking in the basement behind the furnace. Dreams. Like just the 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 image of her hiding behind the furnace, or like the places. eyes, well, yeah, the eyes and the well, drain. Like the that's P- so the scary. The PTSD that she still suffers from that experience well, is just ugh. And the brutality of it all is. I think that's right around the same time where her greatest fear she alludes to being Zelda being behind the door, and she opens the door, and Zelda's yep, actually standing exactly. there. That's, it's right that at that section. That is absolutely perfect. And in my copy, the first line of the next page when you turn it says, Zelda was standing there. Yeah. So just the weird the weird yeah. timing of the paging was, was there, there are a lot of weird timing of the pages in this one, too. And obviously, that's something that he can't account for because he has no idea how it's going to be printed. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy, but it's right? very creepy how that does uh, come into play. Excellent. Um, I... I Similarly thought that the stuff with the aftermath of Zelda, the presence of Zelda and the re- the repetition of some of the things that she says, it's interesting how it haunts Lewis too, mm-hmm. that Lewis starts hearing the things that Rachel tells mm-hmm. him as well. All these little echoes that, that keep staying with Lewis. One of the things I really love about this book is King's realistic ability to show the things from the past and how they hold these truths. Now, if you're going through grief and you're going through some really hard moments in your life, there are little reminders all the time that are around you. And it could be places, it could be things, it could be just moments that are similar to past moments. And King really nails it in this book in the sense that, you know, seeing, just staring off into the living room and remembering a happier time during one of the most traumatizing parts of your life, you know, like towards the end when he sees he's experiencing the downfall of everything. And he knows after he just got off the phone with Goldman, he's like looking at the the living room and remembering all these happier times Mm. and the echoes that keep coming back and hitting Lewis in the, the reminders that he has is like, Oh, the last time we were doing this gauge was still alive or, Oh, the last time we did this, I hadn't gone to the the cemetery. 
it's it's for me like that's such a realistic notion of the human condition to always just keep tying back to like these sort of watermarks like oh when i was doing this last time things were so much better and it's such a cruel thing that ties into ellie's notion that she wants to hold on to gage's photos because if she gets rid of gage's photos he won't be in the present and he's just going to become part of this past and it's going to become something that's not as traumatic once it becomes part of the past because it's something that's in the background. It's something that you kind of memorialize, but it's in those times of grief when those things from the past hurt the most. Mm. And I, I just, I thought those moments in the, in the book, he does it nonstop. That really affected me. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's something that I, I play this game all the time where it's like the week game where I'm like, Oh, a week ago I was doing this. Like a month ago I was doing this. And it's like, for me, it's like a way for me to like, it's a way to remember things. Like I remember dates and, and whatnot, but also it can, it, there's a flip side to it where it does start hurting and you start remembering memories that really affect you in certain ways that just paralyze you. It's a rabbit hole. Yeah, it is. It really is. In terms of like literal echoes, I always like when King does the parenthetical stream of consciousness italics. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this book just, it, there aren't that many, which I think it works in the book's favor, but there's one moment where I think Lewis goes to open a door or he hears something and he has that moment where he's like, Zelda, did you think Zelda, did you think Zelda, Oz the Great and Terrible or something like that? And it's just so scary. And he can't fully grasp the thought, but it's very realistic to how people think Mm -hmm. these weird echoes in their minds. Ellie, there's a a section with her. She had a dream, like I've heard many dreams, but the one that really freaked me out, Rachel is telling uh, Lewis over the phone, Ellie dreamed you were dead, she said. Last night, she woke up crying, and I went into her. I slept with her for two or three hours and then came back in with you. She said that in her dream, you were sitting at the kitchen table and your eyes were open, but she knew you were dead. She said she could hear Steve Masterson screaming. Steve. Steve. But it's just curious. Like, I wonder, like, I don't think that particular vision ever came true, though, because Steve was already gone. Um, by the, like if Lewis did end up dead at the kitchen table, yeah. like, cause like, Steve had left town. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, right. he comes in and he sees him taking Rachel, but like just the concept of, of, you know, the general idea of him, like her having this vision of her dad dead at the kitchen table, like with his eyes open is so freaky. And then just hearing this guy, the specificity of bringing in the friend, Steve is like very creepy to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any deep investigation has to go on here because it's pretty much my favorite scary stories to tell in the dark moment of this entire book. It's after the uh, the Pascal dream, and it's Lewis. Lewis pushed back the blankets and swung his feet out into the nubs of the hooked rug, ready to tell her he'd skip the eggs, just a bowl of cereal, and he'd run. And the words died in his throat. His feet were filthy <laughs> with dirt and pine needles. <laughs> That's just like the perfect trope. I love that stuff. Yeah. I don't know. It's simple but effective. I had had to give it a shout out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love that that whole sequence, except it, it always reminds me, you know, of Wayne's World 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the Jim Morrison. <laughs> yeah, where they tie, they, they oh. marry the, the Doors, the parody of the Doors with Pet Cemetery. Because yeah. uh, he's like, oh, awesome, sand, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Um, I kind of, is it cool if I jump to kind of what I think many of us would agree is the scariest section, which is him taking Gage's body to the McMahon. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I want to do Gage's death first. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cause I think the part that Mike mentioned before when Missy comes up to him at the funeral is this, I remembered this from my first reading all the way up to like my reading probably 10 years later. That was mm-hmm. the part I remembered the most. 
Suddenly, Lewis knew what she was going to say next, and for some reason, he dreaded it. Yet he, it was coming, unavoidable, like a black bullet of a large caliber from a killer's gun. And he knew that he would be struck over and over by this bullet in the next interminable 90 minutes, and then again in the afternoon while the wounds of the morning were still trickling blood. Thank God he didn't suffer, Lewis. At least mm. it was quick. Uh. Yes, it was quick, all right, he thought about saying to her. Ah, how that would shatter her face all over again, and he felt a vicious urge to do it, to simply spray the words into her face. It was quick, no doubt about that, and that's why the coffins closed. Nothing could have been done about Gage, even if Rachel and I approved of dressing up dead relatives in their best like department store mannequins and rouging and powdering and painting their faces. It was quick, Missy, my dear. One minute he was there on the road, and the next minute he was lying in it. But way down by the ringer's house, it hit him and killed him, and then it dragged him, and you better believe it was quick. A hundred yards or more, all told, the length of a football field. I ran after him, Missy. I was screaming his name over and over again, almost as if I expected he would still be alive. Me, a doctor. I ran ten yards, and there was his baseball cap, and I ran twenty yards, and there was one of his Star Wars sneakers. I ran forty yards, and then by then the truck had run off the road, and the box had jackknifed in that field beyond the ringer's barn. People were coming out of their houses, and I went on screaming his name, Missy, and at the 50-yard line, there was his jumper. It was turned inside out. And on the 70-yard line, there was the other sneaker, and then there was Gage. Oof. And that's something else we didn't really talk about, the structure and format, is we learn everything that happened uh, to Gage, either through the narrator looking back or hearing another character look back. You know, his death happens, and we don't actually experience it, whereas we experience everything else in that first part. It's interesting structural decision by King, I think. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the, the actual Wendigo situation when he's bearing Gage, I thought one of the most frightening sections in, in this book also is all of chapter 27. when it, And it comes unexpectedly. It's when Lewis stumbles back home drunk and he goes into the garage. And at first he's just kind mm-hmm. of joking around. And then things take a real quick 180. I thought this is very real also. On page 170, King writes... Somehow he had sailed off course and ran into a wall. A splinter whispered into one palm, and he cried out, Shit, to the darkness, realizing after the word was out that it sounded more scared than mad. The whole garage seemed to have taken a stealthy half-turn. Now it wasn't just the light switch. Now he didn't know where the fuck anything was, and that included the door into the kitchen. And this whole, that whole section of just him, you know, trying to get back in, and he, he wasn't even he wasn't even aware that he was actually kind of frightened Yeah, stumbling around in this darkness. And then he feels he, he like, he knew that he left cat, uh, cat. He, he knew that he <laughs> left uh, the church inside the house. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the section, uh, this is great. And that was when church's hot furry body oiled against his ankle, like uh, a that, low eddy oh. of water followed by its loathsome tail curling <laughs> against his calf, like a clutching snake. And then Lewis did scream. He opened his mouth wide and screamed. Yeah. That whole section is just, oh, it's such a cool little snapshot of horror. I love it. I love it. Well, before you go to the big gauge section, Randall, there's one, <laughs> there's one little thing I've Cut got. Cut to two hours later. Like, before yeah. we go on. Back well, to page There's seven. just so much. But, there is, but there's yeah. one little thing I've got to mention, though, is, is how Lewis is, still thinks that maybe this cat isn't church mm-hmm. until he picks up church and then the following happens. There was dried blood caked on Church's muzzle, and, mm. and caught in his long whiskers were two tiny shreds of green plastic bits yeah. of hefty bag. So you knew he clawed, so he clawed his, way, his out. way out of the bag, and then the oh, gross. But on that right, note right. with Church, the swaying back and forth oh, yeah. was so Timmy eerie. does that too. Yeah. 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 Oh, well then, and then speaking of Timmy, there's that section. <laughs> there we we're never going to get there because <laughs> I have something to say too. <laughs> I got nothing else about Timmy, I promise. 
Uh, I had it. Let me let me try to. Find I was gonna say the, oh. when he digs up Gage and thinks he's decapitated, like he has no hands. Oh god! That, yeah, that was like that's awful. And then so when intense. he has him in the car and he's like, "Oh no, what if he's facing backwards? Yep. What if Ooh. his knees and hips are are bent the wrong way?" And oh. I put him backwards in the seat, so he has to feel and find Gage's nose to make sure he's his, his son's dead body is facing the right way. Ugh. The stuff with Timmy Baderman really uh, creeped me out, but it's specifically when um, Margie Washburn, uh, when Judd gets the Margie Washburn section, and he says, and here Margie's seen him walking up the road, lurching up the road. She finally told old George Anderson, only this was 20 years later, and she was dying. And George told me it seemed to him like she wanted to tell somebody what she'd seen. George said it seemed to him like it preyed on her mind, you know? Pale he was, she said, and dressed in an old pair of chino pants and a faded flannel hunting shirt, although it must have been 90 degrees in the shade that day. Margie said all his hair was sticking up in the back. His eyes were like raisins stuck in bread dough. I saw a ghost that day, George. That's what scared me so. I never thought I'd see such a thing, but there it was. And then you, right after that, he talks about Missy Stratton, Mrs. Stratton, seeing Timmy outside, and Judd says... He just stood there, she said, his hands dangling at his sides and his head pushed forward, looking like a boxer who's ready to eat him some canvas. She said she stood there on her porch, heart going like 60, too scared to move. Then she said he turned around and it was like watching a drunk man try to do an about face. One leg went way out and the other foot turned and he just about fell over. She said he looked right at her and all the strength just run out of her hands and she dropped the basket of washing she had and the clothes fell out and got all smutty all over again. She said his eyes. She said they looked as dead and dusty as marbles, Lewis. But he saw her and he grinned. And she said he talked to her, asked her if she still had those records because he wouldn't mind cutting a rug with her. Maybe that very night. And Mrs. Stratton went back inside and she wouldn't come out for most of the week. And by then it was over anyway. Just that, that feeling of looking and seeing this zombie. It's, it's like the, the zombie, and almost like, and I didn't even think about it. It's like the Night of the Living Dead when you see that thing in the background. Just walking to day, daylight. Yeah. Nothing else is going on. Broad daylight. Ugh. Yeah. And the fact that the male woman wouldn't go back to that road because he would just keep walking yeah. up and down there all day. Is I mean, just, just think ugh. of seeing someone, A, that you know had died yes. because you like saw the coffin or you went to their funeral or whatever, and then having them speak to you and like ugh. knowing that it's not the same person or it's yeah. uh, some perverted person perverted version of that person and they're using true information like uh, weird yeah so lewis is taking gage to bury him and everything is a lot creepier than it was earlier there's lots of mist everywhere ah the mist huh? maybe you've heard of that story i'm just kidding <laughs> um, maybe you've heard of mist um you've missed my favorite my favorite story no um and so he's walking through it He's hearing voices, he's hearing really creepy things, seeing really creepy things, and then shit gets really fucked up. And I was reading this, and I was, I had to, like, stop Mm -hmm. and go back, because I was like, am I missing something? But no, it's just like, it's all so dreamlike and nightmarish, I love it. The voice, if that was what it was, came again, this time from the left. Moments later, it came from behind him, from directly behind him, it seemed, as if he could have turned and seen some blood-drenched thing less than a foot from his back, all bared teeth and glittering eyes, but this time Lewis did not slow. He looked straight ahead and kept walking. Suddenly, the mist lost its light, and Lewis realized that a face was hanging in the air ahead of him, leering and gibbering. Its eyes tilted up like the eyes in a classical Chinese painting, were a rich yellowish-gray, sunken gleaming. The mouth was 
was drawn down in a rictus. The lower lip was turned out, revealing teeth stained blackish-brown and worn down almost to nubs. But what struck Lewis were the ears, which were not ears at all, but curving horns. They were not like devil's horns. They were ram's horns. This grisly floating head seemed to be speaking, laughing. Its mouth moved, although that turned-down lower lip never came back to its natural shape and place. Veins in their pulse black, its nostrils flared as if with breath and life and blew out white vapors. As Lewis drew closer, the floating head's tongue lolled out. It was long and pointed, dirty yellow in color. It was coated with peeling scales, and as Lewis watched one of the these flipped up and over like a manhole cover, and a white worm oozed out. The tongue's tips skittered lazily on the air somewhere below where its Adam's apple should have been. It was laughing. That that whole section is relentless. Yeah. And it doesn't end even when he gets past the deadfall. Oh, that that's what I had. And, yeah. And, and you want to read that part? Yeah. Like oh, with you the can go ahead. Well, like it's it's just really eerie because at this point, Lewis has been doing this for like six to seven hours straight. And you'd think that he would want to get home, but for some reason he just keeps lingering in the pet cemetery mm-hmm. and he's just hanging out there. And then oh, this just fucking scares the hell out of me. It's on page 371. It's right after he gets out of Bering Gage, and you'd think he'd just go home, but no. He lingers around, and then this is where it is. It was this piece of tin that was ticking repeatedly off the boards of the Pet Cemetery's entry arch. Lewis reached down to bend the piece of tin back, and then froze, scalp crawling. Something was moving back there. Something was moving on the other side of the deadfall. When he heard... What he heard was a stealthy kind of sound, the furtive crackle of pine needles, the dry pop of a twig, the rattle of underbrush. They were almost lost under the sow of the wind through the pines. Gage, Lewis called hoarsely. The, real, the very realization of what he was doing, standing here in the dark and calling his dead son, pulled his scalp stiff and brought his hair up on end. He began to shudder helplessly and steadily, as if with a sick and killing fever. Gage? The sounds had died away. Not yet. It's too early. Don't ask me how I know, but I, I do. That isn't Gage over there. That's something else. He suddenly thought of Ellie telling him. He called Lazarus come forth, because if he hadn't called for Lazarus by name, everyone in that graveyard would have risen. On the other side of the deadfall, those sounds had begun again. On the other side of the barrier, almost, but not quite, hidden under the wind, as if something blind were stalking him with ancient instincts. He dreadfully overstimulated brain. His, his dreadfully overstimulated brain conjured horrible, sickening pictures, a giant mole, a great bat that flopped through the underbrush rather than flying. Lewis backed out of the pet cemetery, not turning his back to the deadfall. That ghost-like glimmer, a livid scar on the dark until he was well down the path. Then he began to hurry, and perhaps a quarter of a mile before the path ran out of the woods and into the field behind his house, he found enough left inside him to run. Because even at that so moment, creepy. he's so he's so far down his <laughs> downward spiral oh. that even then he's scared. Still, you know, it's it's that it's that that rude awakening where he's like, "What what am I doing? I'm like in this." And the Wendigo didn't do that for him, like the sixty foot tall. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna play with them. Um, my next part is pretty much a continuation of that. It's when Gage finally returns. Oh yeah. And the imagery here is just horrifying. He's described as a shadow with a steady pull and release of respiration, and he just stands outside the master bedroom for a while. 
without moving. Just, just imagine him just standing there while Lewis is sleeping. And then, of course, he goes in there and takes the scalpel. But the scariest thing for me is that shadow and the description of just the steady pull. Yeah. And like, then just standing there. It doesn't say it there. was breathing. Yeah. It's like performing uh, the oh, act of just, breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just stands there in the doorway for God knows how long before it finally moves again. Like, what is that all about, you know? Oh. Mike, you had mentioned the, or we had mentioned the Wendigo, and um, just the when that appears. Um, did you have that? I did. Yeah. Did you want to read it? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got. That. Yeah. It's great. I'm I'm scared by giant things anyway. I am too. Like, yeah, that's a huge very thing scary. for me. Yeah. This is right after he saw the face um, that mm-hmm. Randall was talking about. That was not Saint Elmo's fire. No, of course it wasn't. This place was thick with spirits. It was tenebrous with them. You could look around and see something that would send you raving mad. He would not think about it. There was no need to think about it. There was no need to... Something was coming. Lewis came to a total halt, listening to that sound, that inexorable approaching sound. His mouth fell open, every tendon that held his jaw shut, simply giving up. It was a sound like nothing he had ever heard in his life. A living sound, a big sound. Somewhere nearby, growing closer, branches were snapping off. There was a crackle of underbrush breaking under unimaginable feet. The jelly-like ground under Lewis's feet began to shake in sympathetic vibration. He became aware that he was moaning. Oh my god, oh my god, what is that? What is coming through this fog? And once more clutching gauge to his chest, he became aware that the peepers and the frogs had fallen silent. He became aware that the wet, damp air had taken on an eldritch, sickening smell like warm, spoiled pork. Whatever it was, it was huge. Lewis's wondering, terrified face tilted up and up like a man following the trajectory of a launched rocket. The thing thudded toward him, and there was the ratcheting sound of a tree, not a branch, but a whole tree falling over somewhere close by. Lewis saw something. The mist stained to a dull slate gray for a moment, but this diffuse, ill-defined watermark was better than 60 feet high. It was no shade, no insubstantial ghost. He could feel the displaced air of its passage, could hear the mammoth thud of its feet coming down, the suck of mud as it moved on. For a moment, he believed he saw twin yellow-orange sparks high above him sparks like eyes. Then the sound began to fade. As it went away, a peeper called hesitantly. One, it was answered by another. A third joined this conversation. A fourth made it a bull session. A fifth and sixth made it a peeper convention. The sounds of the thing's progress, slow but not blundering. Perhaps that was the worst of it, that feeling of sentient progress. We're moving away to the north. Little, less, gone. Mm. I love that. It's so spooky. Yeah. I actually think... The setups to a lot of these things are far more frightening than the actual execution. Yeah. Like, for example, I don't think the actual death of Judd is frightening in any way. Right. But what, hap- what leads to that is very frightening. Yeah. You know, like Judd waking up, jolting up, mm-hmm. and knowing that something is off in his house. Yeah. Is... He has to trace it back to what woke him up. Yeah. Oh, God. That, that whole sequence, reading it, is terrifying. It's actually weird enough that when you do see Gage and he's confronted by Gage... The terror goes away from me. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's here. It's this section right here on page 379. Judd Crandall came awake with a sudden jerk, almost falling out of his chair. He had no idea how long he had slept. It could have been 15 minutes or three hours. He looked at his watch and saw that it was five minutes of five. There was a feeling that everything in the room had been subtly shifted out of position. And there was a line of pain across his back from sleeping, sitting up. Oh, you stupid old man, look what you'd gone and done. But he knew better. In his heart, he knew better. It wasn't just him. He hadn't simply fallen asleep on watch. He had been put to sleep. That frightened him. But one thing frightened him more. What had awakened him? He was under the impression that there had been some sound. Some, he held his breath. 
listening over the papery rustle of his heart. Here was a sound, not the same one that had awakened him, but something, the faint creak of hinges. And this is what really creeped me out, because this is something that I think about every night when I go to bed sometimes and I hear something. Jesus. Judd knew, <laughs> Judd knew every sound in his house. Which floorboards creaked, which stair levels squeaked, where along the gutters the wind was apt to hoot and sing when it was drunkenly high, as it had been last night. He knew the sound as well as any of those. The heavy front door, the one that communicated between his porch and the front hall, had just swung open. And with that information to go on, his mind was able to remember the sound that had awakened him. It had been the slow expansion of the spring on the screen door communicating between the porch and the front walk. Lewis, he called out, but with no real hope. That wasn't Lewis out there. Whatever was out there had been sent to punish an old man for his pride and vanity. Yeah, I love that last line. Yeah, it's a you, great line. You don't think it's scary when he gets killed? I don't. I, I, it's, I think it's far more frightening in, in the film because for me, it's, they're still playing the hide-and-seek thing, whereas you're seeing this thing approaching him. So for me, it, it, I guess the film ruined it for me because I, I just think the way they execute it in the film is far more effective because at that point, you really don't know where he is. And I mean, you do because they keep panning over to underneath the the bed, but Judd doesn't really know. And there's also this sort of distortion of all the colors that are in the room that really play with your perception, which they use to greater effect later on when uh, Rachel sees Zelda in there. But it's the the notion that, you know, Gage is very small. So when you see this small thing approaching him and talking to him, yeah, I guess it's scary. But for me, the idea of not knowing where this small thing could be and, but hearing it and knowing it's around you is far more frightening to me. So when Ga- when Judd is wandering around the house looking and just trying to understand, and he, I think there's the smell changes, he smells the dirt in there. To me, that is far more frightening than than actually seeing uh, the horror. It's 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 just it's stimulating in a way that I that a, a little kid talking like Chucky isn't enough for me. Oh, that <laughs> terrifies know? me. That absolutely wouldn't. Yeah. And I just feel like it's the perfect transition when we have this tiny, tiny chunk, this third act, and it just doesn't hold back. Like he sees mm-hmm. Gage, he's like moldy, and Gage talks to him and this horrible <clears throat> demon words come out of this little child. Like that really, really scares me. And the way he he kills him and brings the scalpel down and says, I'm going to fuck with you all I want. Yeah. Really got to me. I think that's going to that's gonna come back in this new adaptation. I oh, think it's going to yeah. be more faithful to the book in that regard. But. Well, I, I started wondering about how they're going to approach the Wendigo in the adaptation, too. Because you know Ooh, they're going to I would really not want them to do anything with that. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like that's going to be your... CGI cop out. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can make the the swamp really creepy, but don't yes. do, don't even do the one. Don't even try. Don't, try don't even touch it. That's, yeah. why, that's why I kind of like the the weird guy thing that comes up when Lois is walking. I, in that. I, I liked it. Because, I always forget about that until I see it again. I think, what? But, I, but, but, but see, that's what I love about it. They don't explain what that is, which yeah. is kind of where I feel like the Wendigo should be. I don't I think like right before that, Pascal's making a hitchhiker joke or something like that. So it takes me right out of it. Well, my, my, it's true, though. <laughs> but uh, I, the, the thing I the thing like because I Googled the photos of the Wendigo yeah. and just like drawings and, and stuff that, that people have done. And it's far less effective than what you would have. Imagine your yeah, house. exactly. That's they why could do, just, they you know, could do the alone. sounds. I feel like that would be a yeah, good way yeah. to do the footsteps and the design. breaking trees. I would, I would get behind that. Like yeah. the first time he hears it or he feels something big displacing air near him. Oh, Any yeah. other spooky parts we want to share before we leave the cemetery? Oh, just uh, 
Unless someone wants to do Rachel's death, I was going to go. Oh, I don't have. Oh, just that I brought you something, mommy. Yeah. Over and over again. Know. Oh, that's. Yeah, that, that that's, part. I was the reading, repetition of that. Is yeah. Really I was like reading next to my wife and she, when she was last night and she was playing her video game. And, and then uh, when I hit that part, I just audibly went, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then Jen just goes, do not read it to me. <laughs> I, I kept reading her stuff. <laughs> I had the part where uh, Lewis kills Gage and mm. at the very final moment. Oh, yeah. Um, Five steps and the scalpel fell from its hand. It struck the floor blade first and stuck itself into the wood, quivering. Ten steps and that strange yellow light in its eyes began to fade. A dozen and it fell to its knees. Now Gage looked up at him and for a moment Lewis saw his son, his real son, his face unhappy and filled with pain. Daddy, he cried and then fell forward on his face. Mm. And that to me says that Gage was in there somewhere. Which is very terrifying. So bad. Like he tortured his son. He brought him back. Like... And it's like, and then his, you know, and then his hair turns, and like it's terrifying to me he that his hair turns white. Leland Palmer, yeah. and th- yeah, and like, and that when Steve sees him later, he has like he says he has the face of an old old man. Yeah, like that's just so eerie he to me. He looked like the neighbor across the street. Yeah, but it's like uh, it's like just that whole you know, but how he already had kind of gone into madness, and like, and then you realize what you've done to your child well, in that moment, and then it says that he curls up in like the corner for yeah, like I've got hours. That because and then it's like imagine just like the complete and utter emotional destruction even that was like going clicks on. Out, like his sanity just yeah, goes. It's just gone. He yeah. even starts to reason there, even though he sees Gage and Gage says "Daddy" before he falls over and dies. But then the next passage says, "When it was gone at last." Lewis got up and sauntered down the hall to a far corner. Uh, is that the narrator speaking, or is that what Lewis believes? It's, it's an it, not his son. Well, speaking of it, what does this remind you of in this passage? And this is on 401, same section. Hi, Gage. I'm Pennywise. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis clawed for one of the hypos and got it out. He would have to be quick. The thing under him was like a greased fish, and it would not let go of the scalpel no matter how hard he bore down on its wrist. And its face seemed to ripple and change even as he looked at it. It was Judd's face. Dead yeah. and staring. It was the dented rune face of Victor Pascal, eyes rolling mindlessly. It was mirror-like, Lewis's own, so dreadfully pale and lunatic. Then it changed again and became the face of that creature in the woods, the low brow, the dead yellow eyes, the tongue long and pointed and bifurcated, grinning and hissing. Yeah. That's kind of like Pennywise in it. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah, in terms of the transformations. and Yeah. Maybe it's a dandelo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dandagage. Uh, yeah. Dandagage. Dan- Wenda Dandalo. Wenda Gage. <laughs> um, I, I got to tell you guys, I've got goosebumps <laughs> after hey. reading these. Yeah. Some spooky, spooky well, stuff. Of course, so there's, there's the one final one, though. Darling. Oh. Darling. See, that, Darling. See, that, that goes back to uh, the, the sort of February month in Cycle of the Werewolf where it's just oh, I think more that fun is in January. Like my final I, I, No, look, I love it too. Oh, it's man. not scary to me. It's more really? pulpy. It's just more pulpy for me. I don't know. Because I... at that point, and, and it's the same thing with the ending for the movie. It's just so like, all right, they're just going to embrace the, the, the Well, the movie's the much more horror. visceral. And this is, this is not as obvious to me, though. There's something terrifying just by just hearing the, with the hand lays the on door, there. The door, the door closes and yeah. footsteps, and uh, it is a little. It, I, I like it too. I, I it is a little pulpy, but it, yeah. it's still freaky, and I think it's a perfect ending. Yeah. Oh, I agree yeah. too. Like if it had ended with just Steve, I would have been disappointed. <laughs> Steve just drives off. It's like 45 pages of Steve like yeah. living it up in he New York. He never went back, and he. Yeah. <laughs> or if nice it was life. just if it's just Steve poking his head in. Hey Lou, you okay? Oh no! It turns out that the narrator <laughs> was Steve the whole time. Yeah. Like the last one was like, and that's right, and, the, and that's right, and that's where the story ends for me. <laughs> There are a lot of great images in this. That <laughs> I headed off to to Hampton next year. Anyway, go ahead. There are a lot of great images that still stick with me. Like I love when Lewis first moves in and looks across 
the way outside his window and you could just see the, the embers of the cigarette. January embers? The January embers. But either way, the, the, just seeing the cigarette and just knowing that, you know, Judd is watching over the house. Yeah. It, it kind of sets this weird tone of what does Judd know that we don't? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's scary how oh, Ellie Lord. becomes so traumatized by these dreams and no mm-hmm. one is listening to her. And there's yeah. a part where Rachel's like, okay, I'm going to get tickets to back to Maine and her face like visibly relaxes. And it's like, no child should be burdened with this awful responsibility. Mm-hmm. I love that. We never go back to Ellie once again. Yeah, I do too. She's just out there. Yeah. But anyway, anything else? I think I'm ready to get out. Are of we cemetery? suitably, suitably spooked? Yeah. Uh, it's time for us to, Exit through the cemetery gates and walk into what we like to call the word processor of the gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? So this is the section of the podcast where we like to point out just some really damn good writing. Because King, as we all know, is not just some shockmeister. The guy knows how to write. So why don't we all go around and share one or two um, sections that we thought were especially powerful? Who wants to kick things off here? Little Justo from from a... Um, yeah, I'll, Little Justo will start off with a tale of Little Gage. <laughs> This is a very, very, very sad section, actually. Um, Kite flying, Gage cried out to his father, and Lewis put his arm around Gage's shoulders and kissed the boy's cheek, in which the wind had bloomed a wild rose. I love you, Gage, he said. It was between the two of them, and that was all right. And Gage, who now had less than two months to live, laughed shrilly and joyously. Kite flying, kite flying, Daddy. Just the... It's just a brutal four yeah. lines where it's the most innocent time and obviously the last real wonderful moment they'll ever have. I think Lewis alludes to it later on. Yeah. yeah. That's like his last moment of happiness, I said, right? What? Oh, yeah. When, yeah. I, when <laughs> I read that the first it, time. What? Excuse me? Um, I just love that uh, father son moment there in the book. What else stands out? What's some other good writing? I mean, I, I really liked his rundown on a couple of subjects in this book. I mean, I, I talked about how there are a lot of sections in Pet Cemetery that feel more essay like yeah. on subjects that pertain to king and one of them is marriage <gasps> i had the exact same thing pulled up you oh you go first no, no, you please. go first well it's on page 53 and it's between lewis and rachel our uh, our star couple <laughs> <laughs> lewis stared at her nonplussed he more than half suspected that one of the things which had kept their marriage together when it seemed as if each year brought the news that two or three of their friends marriages had collapsed was their respect of the mystery the half grasp, but never spoken idea that maybe when you got right down to the place where the cheese binds, there was no such thing as marriage, no such thing as union, that each soul stood alone and ultimately defied rationality. That was the mystery. And no matter how well you thought you knew your partner, you occasionally ran into blank walls or fell into pits. And sometimes, rarely, thank God, you ran into a full-fledged pocket of alien strangeness, something like the clear air turbulence that can buffet an airliner for no reason at all an attitude or belief which you had never suspected, one so peculiar, at least to you, that it seemed very that it seemed nearly psychotic, and then you trod lightly. If you valued your marriage and your peace of mind, you tried to remember that anger at such a discovery was the province of fools who really believed it was possible for one mind to know another. Mm. Great. That's not my experience, because anytime I encounter that sort of thing, I'm like, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I do love, I love that section. No, yeah. it's great. I have one just really short one that I thought was such a powerful piece of writing. And it's when he, and it's in the midst of uh, him digging up Graves or Gage's body. Digging up all those graves. Yeah. To find, no. to find Gage where he was buried. <laughs> Yeah, it was unmarked. He had to dig up all the graves. But just this section I thought was really powerful. Just this one little, like this one sentence. But uh, it's when he's like breaking open the latch on the actual casket. And he says, the latch had splintered on the first stroke and probably no more were necessary. But he went on not wanting just to open the coffin, but to hurt it. Some kind of sanity finally returned and he stopped with the spade raised. But the concept of not just open the coffin, but hurt it, like hurt the coffin, like hurt everything that you could that was associated with his death. Like that to me is such a palpable thing of grief because you want to hurt something. You want to, you know, anything that that any way you can expel your rage and hurt a thing that is like constricting, you know, your son or that it contributed to your son being gone. Like it's just such a visceral image to me. And it really it shows how far gone he is when he starts thinking of Gage as unjustly imprisoned instead mm-hmm. of dead. Yeah. Because he is the one trying to be the voice of reason in the beginning of the book saying the death is natural and unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have the, it's really long, so I won't read the whole thing, but the dream state he gets into when he's thinking about patrolling at Disney World with Gage, and it strikes at the heart of the book for me, talking about how death is always in the room with you and you can't anticipate or um, redirect it, basically. He and his son were on patrol. He and his son were the sentries in this magic land, and they cruised endlessly in their white van with the red dashboard flasher neatly and sensibly covered. They were not looking for trouble, not they, but they were ready for it should it show its face. That it was lurking even here, in a place dedicated to such innocent pleasures, could not be denied. Some grinning man buying film along Main Street could clutch his chest as the heart attack struck. A pregnant woman might suddenly feel the labor pain start as she walked down the steps from the sky chariot. A teenage girl as pretty as a Norman Rockwell cover might suddenly collapse in a flopping epileptic fit. Loafers rattling out a jagged backbeat on the cement as the signals in her brain suddenly jammed up. There were sunstroke and heatstroke and brainstroke, and perhaps at the end of some sultry Orlando summer afternoon, there might even be a stroke of lightning. There was even Oz the Great and Terrible himself here. He might be glimpsed walking around near the monorail's point of egress into the Magic Kingdom, or peering down from one of the flying dumbos with his flat and stupid gaze. Mm. Down here, Lewis and Gage had come to know him as just another amusement park figure, like Goofy or Mickey or Tigger, or the estimable Mr. D-Duck. He was the one, however with whom no one wanted his or her picture taken, the one to whom no one wanted to introduce his son or daughter. Lewis and Gage knew him. They had met him and faced him down in New England some time ago. He was waiting to choke you on a marble, to smother you with a dry cleaning bag, to sizzle you into eternity with a fast and lethal boggy of electricity, available at your nearest switchplate or vacant light socket right now. He goes on to just talk about all the different ways you can die in, in yeah. graphic detail, but it just that whole section just... Laid me flat and made me have to stop reading mm-hmm. after. So, um, for me, another dream sequence we talked about a little bit earlier is he dreams that he saved Gage. Mm-hmm. And he goes through that whole thing about how he graduates from John Hopkins. Yeah. He gets his relationship with this woman. He converts, but actually doesn't stay with the woman. He becomes an Olympic swimmer. It's this real expansive – it's like you go through his entire life and then – Obviously, wakes up, and I believe that's at near the end of the book when Gage has already come back from the dead. But what I want to read is actually a part that kind of belongs in the cemetery, but it's just so beautifully written, I believe. This is after Lewis discovers Judd's body, and he goes to cover it, and this happens. Um, he remembers Thanksgiving with Norma and Judd, and she had taken the white lawn tablecloth from the lower drawer as he was taking it now. But she had put it on the table and then anchored it with lovely pewter candlestick holders while he, Lewis, 
watched it billow down over Judd's body like a collapsing parachute, mercifully covering that dead face. Almost immediately, tiny rose petals of deepest, darkest scarlet began to stain the white lawn. Yeah. Poor Judd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a section. It's, uh, Rachel talking about Zelda. Um, this monologue that she has just, like, slays me. She says, I turned her over on her belly and thumped her back. Rachel went on at last. It's all I knew how to do. Her feet were beating, beating up and down and her twisted legs. And I remember that there was a sound like farting. I thought she was farting or I was, but it wasn't farts. It was the seams under both arms of my blouse ripping out when I turned her over. Oh. She started to to convulse and I saw that her face was turned sideways, turned into the pillows. And I thought, oh, she's choking. Zelda's choking. And they'll come home and say, I murdered her by choking. They'll say, you hated her, Rachel, and that was true. And they'll say, you wanted her to be dead, and that was true, too. Because, Lewis, see, the first thought that went through my mind when she started to go up and down in the bed like that, I remember it. My first thought was, oh, good, finally, Zelda's choking, and this is going to be over. That's such harsh. Now, can you read that without hearing her monologue in the the movie? Uh, It's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I do remember that being a very good performance because she she does this she does that and that was true too like her delivery in that is brilliant it's just it's it's great star trek the next generation's denise crosby it's true it's true she's very good i uh i have another interesting digression that ties to sort of an evergreen theme Mm -hmm. which is the the concept of grief and how we kind of stow away things in the past it's when lewis is talking to ellie and ellie is trying to keep gauge in the present by like eating the lima beans and having the cocoa bears and basically trying to do everything that Gage would do and holding, you know, clutching the portrait because she doesn't want to lose the idea that Gage is just going to subside into the past. And King writes, she was crying now. Lewis did not try to comfort her, but only brushed her back from her forehead. What she was talking about made a certain crazed sense. Keeping the lines open, keeping things current, keeping Gage in the present, in the hot 100, refusing to let him recede. Remember when Gage did this or that? Yeah, that was great. Good old Gage. What a kid. When it started not to hurt, it started not to matter. She understood, perhaps, Lewis thought, how easy it would be to let Gage be dead. Ellie, don't cry anymore. This isn't forever. She cried forever for 15 minutes. She actually fell asleep before her tears stopped, but eventually she slept, and downstairs the clock struck ten in the quiet house. Keep him alive, Ellie, if that's what you want, he thought, and kissed her. The shrinks would probably say it's as unhealthy as hell, but I'm for it, because I know the day will come, maybe as soon as this Friday, when you forget to carry the picture, and I'll see it lying on your bed in this empty room while you ride your bike around the driveway or walk in the field behind the house or go over to Kathy McGowan's house to make clothes with her so perfect. Gage won't be with you, and that's when Gage drops off whatever hot 100 there is that exists in the little girl's hearts and starts to become something that happened in 1984, a blast from the past. And I think this doesn't just apply to death. I think this applies to everything. I think it applies to friendships. I think it applies to broken relationships. I think it, just the idea that the, it's kind of what they talk about, like the movie Ghost Story is very much of this, this, this concept. And when in the movie... Uh, Casey Affleck's character as a ghost is is startled by the fact that she's already seeing other people, but time has moved on, and and yes, she still is sad and, and grieving over the, this loss, but she has to move on with her life, and she, she has to compartmentalize this grief into something that she can move on and move past, and that's just part of the human condition. Acceptance, but it's there's still something incredibly tragic about that because you don't want that person who was a real live human being and who, who meant something to you 
to be gone forever. Yeah. And and that passage just it just oh god, it's just it's so bruising. And it, just, it still happens too to like everybody. Like you were saying, it's not just a kid yeah. thing. If you ever, I looked over old G chats the other day. Oh wow! And just recalled a close friendship that I had completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, oh my god, like. Me and this person like shared work. We like yeah. gave, we critiqued each other. We were talking about collaborating on all this stuff, and then they moved, and like I forgot how close we were. We actually talked about relationships, and in my mind, this person was like a roommate of a, of my best friend's boyfriend. But I had forgotten that like we were really close friends. It was yeah. so strange. Yeah, that 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 thing where the past becomes the past is something that really haunted me in this read because now I'm a little bit older. You know, I'm not that old. I'm only 33. But there, there is a realization to what the past truly becomes. And I started thinking about this idea that the things that that Lewis latches onto, like his obsession with where the coffin came from and what happens to his child and the body and what it becomes, and knowing that this body was just the child that was in his house that he was holding, in, that was a, a, a person that he had to care for, that now is just going to become this rotting thing under the ground in a, in a, in a box that was made somewhere else. And you start going down that rabbit hole and it, it, you don't lose your mind. It just, it just becomes these facts of life that tie into the cruel realities of life. And for me, I started thinking about my friend who, who died, he was my roommate in college and he died a few years ago. And he's really the, my, you know, it's the first real brush I had with like an actual, like, like a really close friend who died. And I started thinking about how he's ash somewhere in the ocean now. And how that Ash was a human being. I mean, he was he was <laughs> he used to bring girls like back to the dorm room. And he would they would be having sex like right next to, like to my bed and like these weird crazy things. And we used to you know just share beers together and that physical presence. I mean, we watched. I can remember every movie that we watched together. I can remember sleeping in his bed because my bed sheets were all broken. But and being able to like and just knowing that I was like, oh, this smells like Dave or whatever. And now he's just Ash. He doesn't exist anymore. And and the concept of knowing that that's a reality and knowing that that is also going to happen to you and everyone that you know around you is, 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 is it's just, it's terrifying. And, and I think that that realization is such a human element and is such a part of the human condition that I think that is why this book haunts you because it really makes you confront some things that you don't really think about when you're watching, you know, somebody run down the halls of a haunted hotel or, you know, a bunch of vampires. There's a realness to this book that is separate from a lot of his other books. Mm -hmm. And it's the way that King approaches the realities and and these little segments, like the one I just read or like the ones that you all read, there's, there's a realism to it that is just so dark and so has so much depth that is just so different than any of his other horror stories. Yeah, When he contemplates what, the cover of the book that people have to sign is going to say. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and why it's even there. It's, it's ends up being blank, but like just him ruminating on like, why do they sign this book? Like, what am mm-hmm. I doing? What is the book going to be like the day we planted gauge? Like, yeah. 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 All the, all the like physical necessities that go into a funeral that go into the death of a loved one that go into thinking like, you know, that's just where his body is. And he talks mm-hmm. about Norma, too, like thinking about like now, by now, the cotton they used to put in her cheeks is turning black. black. Yeah. Remember that? Oh. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I could use a little cheering up. Mm. I could also use a little dessert. Let me head to the fridge. I think we're going to head to the fridge and uh, cut off a couple slices of pound cake. 
After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. For such a dark, freaky book, there's actually quite a lot of delicious, delicious pound cake to be found in these pages. What? But, Marino, I mean, there are a million wakes here. Of course there are going to be tons of pound cake to eat. It's I mean, true. It's true. Grief is <laughs> there's a lot of funeral desserts here. Uh, yes. And so uh, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to nosh on. So pound cake is a section uh, that if... <laughs> That if uh, you're uninitiated to the podcast, this is where we like to call out and just poke a little fun at some of King's bluer moments, whether that be a disgusting way to talk about sex or just a curious way to talk about a doctor from the Middle East, uh, which we'll get to. So I'm going to kick things off uh, with this filthy, filthy serving of pound cake by bringing up one that we probably all have. There's some, you know, and like Mike was pointing this out earlier when we were talking, we don't like, we don't throw any king related sex stuff under pound cake because he can write a good sex scene now would and you then. say the majority though i, I would say the majority i would say the majority I would say the majority but every now and then you know they're like uh, but dead zone was an exception yeah that, dead zone was an example. exception yeah, he can write he can write some good intimacy occasionally and let's just say this is a contentious piece because i uh i have some other thoughts uh, uh, we'll about see this which one, one you're guys, talking yeah, about yeah, all right but we'll, uh we'll start up on but this i'll one. just say that he does tend to indulge in some very romance novel kind of pulp and uh, i've got one right here so uh, <laughs> there's kind of a very extended serving of is pound this, cake pretty early on. I call this the unholy trifecta. Yes. And <laughs> we'll probably have different sections right. because there's a lot of pound cake to pull. And I was like, I'm not going to pull all of it because I know they're going to grab some. But the one that made me laugh the most because it's such porn dialogue was uh, Rachel and Lewis. He comes home. Uh, he's very stressed out. And they're going to. After Pascal's some, dead. After think, Pascal's yeah. dead. She's in her lingerie. And then they're kissing. And it says, at last their kiss broke. And he asked her a bit hoarsely, are you for dinner? Dessert, she said, and then began to rotate her lower body slowly and sensuously against his groin and abdomen. But I promise you, you don't have to eat anything you don't like. Daddy hungry. <laughs> Daddy hungry. It's just. It's Daddy just hungry so- is not in the book. <laughs> 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 That's what, what Tabby got her hands with a copy. She said, Stevie, cut that out. I just love a bit hoarsely. That's Are part one of the dinner? trifecta. That's part one of my trifecta. Okay, yeah. That was my favorite. <laughs> I think about, like, do you have the next part? There? Oh, I'm playing Henry Fonda, and I'm going to stand up right now. <laughs> oh, go ahead. I think, look, they're a hot young couple from Chicago. <laughs> they have kids. They are clearly young enough that they still got a, as you mentioned, they have a spark. There is the, a spark. I feel the only line in here that is out of hand is the Girl Scouts line. <laughs> yes. so, that would That's be part only two one. of the trifecta. The part two is... This is after Rachel gives him, like, a out-of-this-world handjob. After bathtub fun. Which, <laughs> I mentioned this before. I did not know what a handjob was the first time I read this book, and so the bathtub scene made absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> I was like, where is she putting the sponge? Where is she gripping him? Oh, God. I, I think you have Her two hand. parents who are absolutely ready to, to have some fun when the kids are asleep. And... I, oh, they're not even. They're asleep. not even they're there. Not in the house. You would hope they're oh, not doing. They're like, at Missy's. They're at Missy's. Missy's watching. So they're, yeah. yeah, they're they're at Missy's. They're having some fun. But I mean, I, I actually think this is one of King's sexier sections. I and don't Grant, know, man. I, I cannot I think, agree. I think it's goofy. I, I think it's great. I think that <laughs> I think goofy. that it's very romantic. The only thing I, I think that's when it, that's that's worthy of the pound cake is, <laughs> my God, he said shakily when he could speak again. Mind you, this is after the handjob. Where did you learn that? Girl Scouts, she said primly. That's the only one I really okay. think Can went I, over the overboard there. Here's a third section. Off. Are yeah. you for dinner? After after dinner. 
after dinner. Now, she said, let's see what you can do for me. All things considered, Lewis thought he rose to the occasion for a walk. That is a cute... That's great. That's a that's great, great send-off, but though. But it's funny. But it's, it's, it's a, that's what yeah. I love about Pound Cake, yeah. is it's so often they end either at the end of chapters or a little... Yeah, it's the buttons. Yeah, yeah, the buttons to make it. I, I love it. I thought this was, in terms of a sex scene, I thought it was incredibly effective. He doesn't. Adrian Lynn directed it. Adrian. <laughs> it's like, uh, he thought he rose to the occasion. Um, <laughs> he thought he rose to the occasion. I think I rose I, to the I'm, occasion. I'm actually with Mike on this. Now, <laughs> oh knowing, now that I know what a hand job is, having learned. Oh, Girl Scouts. Um, I love it. I don't like the Girl Scouts line, no. but I think, it's a, I think it's a sexy scene. The bathtub. You part. don't have to. Do you like him? I think I rose to the occasion. Lewis thought heroes to the occasion quite well. I will say I think you're gonna not- like Earth. <laughs> but there is one more section that is out of control. And it's I like to say uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh Who wants to God. read this section? I- Who wants to read this section? Mel, sure. you have it? It's long, so get ready. Right, okay. Rachel has been kind of propositioning Lewis, and he has to go put the cat out and clean up one of the cat's messes. Um Upstairs. Well, I don't know. Where do you want me to start? That's exactly where I start. (laughs) Upstairs, Rachel was lying on her bed, wearing nothing but the sapphire on its chain, as promised. She (laughs) smiled at him lazily. What took you so long, chief? The light over the sink was out, Lewis said. I changed the bulb. Come here, she said, and tugged him gently toward her. Not by the hand. (laughs) He knows if you've been sleeping, she sang softly. A little smile curved up the corners of her lips. He knows if you're awake. Oh my, Lewis dear, what's this? (laughs) Something that just woke up, I think, Lewis said, slipping off his robe. Maybe we ought to see if we can get it to sleep before Santa comes. What do you think? She rose on one elbow. He felt her breath warm and sweet. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Have you been a good boy, Lewis? I think so. (laughs) His voice was not quite steady. Let's see if you taste as good as you look, she said. Hot, hot, hot. Um, The reason reason why... Not since like water for chocolate have I been so titillated. (laughs) The the reason why I think that section works is because it's preceded or is it falling after where the crow sequence happens. Yeah, it's around that time he's to clean up the... The juxtaposition of the horror with that, though, is great. Um, oh, I'm amused as hell by these sequences. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah. funny. Yeah. So there's a couple moments, and we've mentioned this it's earlier, cute. I think, uh, that where there's like just a little like cr- some crumbs of pound cake that come in the middle of an otherwise like fairly serious section, mm-hmm. like a really well written section. Oh, I think and so I've got no. two, um, and one. I'll, okay, I'm going to read one that is a better example than another one that we had discussed earlier. That kind of it's a thing that comes out of nowhere, and yeah. we're all like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. But it's like this one is. I I was reading this. I, t- I should have took a screenshot because um I wanted to send it to you guys. But I was like reading really late at night a couple nights ago, and the snow was coming down outside, and I was sitting like in the window reading, and it was really lovely, and I was like loving this section, and so um. But then there's just like couple crumbs of pound cake that pop out. (laughs) No, it's so funny. I'm trying to set the scene. Uh, He and Rachel went up the stairs together. Lewis put his arm around her waist and loved her the best he could. But even as he entered into her hard and erect, he was listening to the winter wine outside the front traced windows, wondering about church, the cat that used to belong to his daughter and now belonged to him, wondering where it was and what it was stalking or killing. It's such like hard. and erect. I know, it's such a funny little section, and then right in the middle, it's just entered into her hard and erect. <laughs> like, it's like, does that Can you be, be one without the other? There, there are some really weird ones that are like that, too, but there's also in moments of horror. So when he's, like, following Pascal out into uh, the Pet cemetery on page 84, 
he writes, Lewis wondered briefly if Pascal had just ceased to exist. Fig- figures and dreams often did just that. So did locations. First, you're standing nude by a swimming pool with a raging heart on, <laughs> discussing the possibilities of white's wife swapping with, say, Roger and Missy Dandridge. Then you blinked and you were climbing the side of a Hawaiian volcano. What a weird... What? So I, I remember... Heard, no, I remember that, too. Like, I was like, what? Because I also was... Uh, I was also, like, thinking of Missy Dandridge from the movie. And I'm like, yeah. oh, gosh. She's, like, the creepy witch in the X-Files. Like, uh, Oh, yeah. There yeah. are a lot of typos in my book. Yes. Oh, really? Same ton, here. And Same one here. of them Luis. is accidental pound cake on page 43. They wee in a natural clearing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be our first instance of accidental pound cake. That's pretty like great. Uh, this is the one we were discussing earlier, but it's more of, like... A bizarre character detail that emerges sort of like unceremoniously and it's it's like but it's a bit of pound cake lewis still remembered the dream and the sleepwalking incident that had accompanied it but now it seemed almost as if it had happened to someone else or on a television show he had once watched his one visit to a whore in chicago six years ago seemed like that now they were equally unimportant side trips which held a false res- resonance like sounds produced in an echo chamber yeah, just what those, is that i know it's just unimportant those, to who <laughs> <laughs> it's just like out of nowhere it's like oh i went to a whore in chicago and that's he's with rachel at that point I like know. he yeah. went to a whore it's just kind of hilarious because it just comes out of nowhere it almost oh. it makes it, is it like some forging a connection between him and judd so like when judd confesses that he also went to some whorehouses like <sighs> i don't know it's weird that it it's never really comes weird. back up it's so strange i uh, i like uh, this one section on uh, one t- on page 121 which i called uh signet classic uh, paperback edition wiki sullivan's uh wiki sullivan his thesis when he's basically talking to lewis about how he could not you know he could look at naked women when he's a doctor and not get a hard on oh <laughs> and his thesis is on page 121 a tit is a tit was Wiki's thesis, and a twat is a twat. You should either be horny all the time or none of the time. All Lewis could respond was that your wife's tit was different, just like your family is supposed to be different, he thought now. Church wasn't supposed to get killed because he was inside the magic circle of the family. What he hadn't been able to make Wiki understand was that doctors compartmentalize just as cheerfully and blindly as anyone else. A tit wasn't a tit unless it was your wife's tit. In the office, a tit was a case. You could stand up in front in medical colloquium and cite leukemia figures in children until you were blue in the face and still not believe and still not believe it if one of your kids got a call on the bone phone. <laughs> yeah, because leukemia is a type of bone cancer. Oh, oh okay, okay. Oh, you <laughs> thought you meant <laughs> okay. hilarious pound cake about children yeah, with cancer. Yeah. Bone, I, bone I, phone. I, I was just like, I was like, bone phone. Is that the? That's uh, that's why late night phone calls. Like a, the like thing a is bro like, calling up. A, that yeah. is totally a thing King would write about. Bone yeah. phone. The bone yeah. phone. Yeah. Um, um, oh, you go. I just really liked the phrasing on page twenty-eight. Rachel laughed so hard she broke explosive wind. Yes, I have that one too. <laughs> yeah, that was a, such a random thing too. So old timey. It, it reminded me of We've the scene there. in uh, Sorry, Cat- I broke wind, fellas. <laughs> in like Caddyshack. Explosively. Uh, when, when, uh, you'll have all, to excuse me. They're all laughing at the table and Rodney Dangerfield farts and he's like, oh, who stepped on a duck? Yeah. <laughs> So um, shies it off. Judd laughed. One we re- we almost referenced earlier when he meets um, Surendra, the doctor. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Well, hello, Lewis said, shaking his small brown hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. He ref- he literally refers to Surendra as the Indian like yes, a couple times. It's, it's so bad. It's so funny. Um, and then I've got one more here. This one was more because he's literally going to dig up his son. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's like there's something cartoony about this. Like while in this, because he's talking about how he's going to get into the cemetery, and there's these um, you know spires that are going up with these pointed ends. So the fence was easily nine feet high. And 
each wrought iron stave ending in a decorative arrow-like point. Decorative, that is, until you happen to slip while swinging your leg over, and the force of your suddenly dropping 200 pounds drove one of those arrow points into your groin, exploding your testicles. <laughs> and there you would be, skewered like a pig at a barbecue, hollering until someone called for the police, and they came and pulled you off and took you to the hospital. It's like, come on, we're, we're talking about a guy digging up his dead son here. Well, and even before that. <laughs> oh, my balls don't blow up. <laughs> Exploded testicles. And this is before, right before he gets to the cemetery when he's uh, hanging out in the cool uh, uh, holiday, or Hojo. Uh, it's on page 322. He watched four hours of TV, eight oh, back-to-back hour, half-hour comedy programs. He realized it had been a very long time since he watched so much TV in a steady, uninterrupted stream. He thought that all the female leads in the sitcoms were what his friends had referred as cock teasers back in high school. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for the info. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis just has these like tiny, tiny crumbs, as you were saying, of like, maybe he kind of sucks. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but anyways, any more pound cake or have we have we uh, consumed this play? I'm, I'm pretty full, full too. Yeah. Some good stuff been there. Topped off. <laughs> I will say that I think so far as to where we are in uh, you know the King bibliography. I think that bathtub sequence is the hottest sequence that he's ever written. I'm just Mike's putting it out there. Just putting it out there. Hot as hell. On that note, it's time to, uh, you know, uh, loosen our belts and head on over to King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. It's King's Dominion, where we, the losers, discuss how... This book, Pet Cemetery, will fit, fits into the larger realm of King's works. As you know, they are all interconnected in some kind of crazy way, some books more than others. And there's a surprising amount of connective tissue here. Uh, who wants to, who's, who's got some that they've noticed? I've got something here from Le- Leah on our Goodreads message board, actually. Ooh. It was something I did not pick up on. And this is near the end, I believe. When Lewis is going out to buy, I think he buys a shovel at something like at a hardware store before he goes to dig up Gage. And the dialogue goes as such. Uh-oh, the clerk said. Better get a clothespin for your nose while you're at it. Lewis laughed dutifully. His purchase came to 5860 He paid cash. Five plus eight plus six equals... Nineteen. Hey, oh, that's interesting. Interesting, I like that. Uh, Thank you, with Leah. Some of the more obvious ones. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty obvious ones. Um, also, I think, there's a lot of nineteen stuff going on here yeah. that I was yeah. really surprised about. I think we also we all noticed uh, rabies. Crandall said yeah. a lot of rabies in Maine now. There was a big old Saint Bernard went rabid downstate a couple of years ago and killed four people. That was a hell of a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is he referencing? Sure was. <laughs> is he referencing Firestarter? I think he's referencing uh, shop. Christine. No, rage. Christine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's talking that that St. Bernard he's talking about is uh Charlie Decker. Charlie uh, yeah. Decker, the old St. Bernard. Um, awesome. what other ones did you guys notice? Well, on page 24 there's a mention of Derry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's one. Um, there's also a mention of Haven, which yep. is the setting for Tommy Knockers. Mm-hmm. That's where uh the guy who killed who accidentally killed Victor Pascal is from is from Haven. I think it was a drunk guard. <laughs> <laughs> and to round out our place mentions, there's uh Salem's Lot. Yeah, yep. I love that. That uh, whole section Somebody wants to read that. Jerusalem's lot, she thought randomly. What an odd name. Not a pleasant name for some reason. Come and sleep in Jerusalem. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Especially Uh, especially in the condition she's at right now. And you know that, like, that's the last place she needs to drive. Yeah. (laughs) What if there was, like, a whole subplot where she stopped there and then ended up fighting vampires? (laughs) I got a whole other... (laughs) She'd be like, this nightmare never ends. (laughs) 
when I read the Come and Sleep in Jerusalem, I, I read that more of like a supernatural invitation from Salem's Lot. Ooh. Saying, stop over here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I that's think the scary. way that I, yeah, the way yeah. that I, because the, the way I read it, the way it's like laid out in the book, it does resonate as that. I had just like cut and pasted it and I forgot the context oh, there. there. There are two references to The Shining. One is the instant karma on page 94. Yep. Our favorite doctor. Uh, yeah, our favorite doctor. Uh, and uh, on, um, on page 147, they do the all work and no play reference yeah. also. Yeah. Also on that same side to Jerusalem's lot, there's a mention of Cumberland. Cumberland County. Isn't that where, is that where Carrie takes place, I think? I think so, actually. Cumberland yeah. County is a King County, so that was also on that same sign. I have a room two three seven one maybe mm. on page three hundred. Lewis is trying to throw something at church. He picked up the first thing that, that came to hand in the litter of Gage's toys: a bright plastic chuggy chuggy choo choo, which Ooh. in this dim light was the maroon color of dried blood. So if it's maroon in the dim light, maybe it's pink when the lights are on. Oh, maybe it's plain. Um, I've, I've got a deep one uh, that maybe nobody else got. Page 125, there's a woman named Betty Kozlov. Oh, I got it. Ah, <laughs> Marty Kozlov from Cycle of the Werewolf. Oh, so yeah. they're the Kozlov family, or Kolslaw family, Kolslaw. however. It's pronounced different in different regions. Um, I've, got a, I've got a room 237 here. Uh, Judd's talking. By the time we got down those 45 stairs, he was walking as steady as if he was sober again. We went back through the swamp and the woods and over the deadfall, and finally we crossed the road and we was at my house again. It seemed to me like 10 hours must have gone past, but it was still full dark. Mm. No stars. stars. I've got that, too. <laughs> I've got that, too. You want some 237. Oh, Here I, we go. <laughs> Let's see if we got this one. Norma's plot number is H101. Now. H is the eighth letter oh, of the alphabet. <laughs> if you break down 101 as the number 10 and the number 1, add them together, <laughs> then add 8, which represents H, and you get 19. 19. Did you come up with that? Yeah. Oh, my God. I, Every time I, I see numbers in this, I, I think about 19. I got another room to 37. Let's hear it. <laughs> this is so fucking ridiculous. On page 267, there is something going on in there, Lewis. But I don't think it was thinking, and I don't think it had much, maybe nothing at all, to do with Timmy Baderman. It was more like a, a radio signal that was coming from somewhere else. You looked at him and you thought, if he touches me, I'm going to scream like that. Now, he's talking about a radio signal inside Timmy Baderman's head. Mm-hmm. Could this be the same radio signal from Shell? Shark- oh, I thought you were thinking about like Shardick the Bear with the, with the antenna. On the oh, head. no, no, no. I'm thinking of the, the – because like look, if uh, Timmy Baderman's oh, actions are very similar to the, 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 those that hear this Cell signal. You know, I love and- Pet Cemetery as a prequel to Cell. <laughs> Much like Pet Cemetery, Cell, one of my favorite Stephen King books. <laughs> um, uh, I got so, a couple more 237s. Okay, bring on the 237s. I got How does more. Gage pronounce car? Ka? Yeah. Ah. Oh, and he gets hit by a truck. Mm. There you go. I, at one point, he refers to Gage as a thing of evil. <laughs> I just thought of Molly. <laughs> Molly. <laughs> there, uh, here's, oh, here's one that I had that was that's not really tied to King's works, but more of just the actual processes of evil in the land itself. Now, I thought, and we, we talked about this a week ago at a Max show, but um, the idea that there's a burial ground for the, the Micmac burial ground behind the pet cemetery. Now, I was wondering why is there, the, 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 in, in the long line of things, the pet cemetery itself seems kind of superfluous when you actually think about how important the Micmac burial ground is. And I started wondering, is the pet cemetery a, a, a sacrificial ground for 
whatever evil is in the Micmac burial ground. Is that why people were drawn to just that area to bury their pets? Are you saying like you bury them, they come back, you kill them, you need a place to bury them again? Yeah, or just like they're offered up to whatever evils or what the Wendigo perhaps. Maybe it's not those that come back, but they're just sacrificial offerings to whatever culture of evil is behind those woods. It just seems so bizarre to have... The, the title of the story is Pet Cemetery. Mm. You bury the pets at the Pet Cemetery, But that is such a sliver of what is actually really the focus of that, which is, is what behind the Pet Cemetery. So it's, yeah. it reminded me of, and I, I made this example last week, that sequence in The Simpsons when it's uh, the Shelbyville episode where Bart's sitting down there. And he's like, this is as useful as that lemon-shaped rock. There's a lemon behind that rock. And it's like it, it, the, the idea that like, all right, so you have this already creepy conceit of the pet cemetery and then behind it, you have this burial ground. So I was just trying to think, what are the two things that could tie this together? And I just thought maybe the pets were always supposed to be this sort of sacrificial area. And the fact that they're all spiraled together, similar to the spiral of graves that are on the mm-hmm. burial ground, maybe there's some sort of tie there as, as opposed to just being something that happened to coincidentally tie together somehow i don't know but um maybe it's a, a weird kind of bleed through between worlds doesn't Could he be? say mm-hmm. at one point like i don't want to bury him or her up there because even the pet cemetery might be yeah too close might yeah. be too close <laughs> yeah it reminds me of an old song that says i don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery <laughs> oh, yeah, i don't want to live song. my life again uh, um the uh, the Ram- call the ramones the ramones yeah. yes so yeah there was the we had mentioned this earlier but when Lewis is taking Gage and he says, uh, and just by the by, have you ever seen plants like these in Maine before in Maine or anyone else? What in Christ's name are they? I love that mm. section. Mm-hmm. Just like, cause he's looking at the plants on the ground. He's yeah. realizing that w- he is no longer in Alan, Maine. The species has been extinct since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, but you put them because they look good. <laughs> well, yeah. And I just love it because, um, I love it because it, it, it reminds me. And we had joked about this earlier, but like Mrs. Dodge shortcut, mm-hmm. it reminded me of that story. Just this whole idea of like, you're bleeding into another dimension, you know, just like without even really realizing it where everything is a little strange and different. And that, that connection to me just made me think of other uh, stories. Like it made me think of the club from the breathing method Mm. where you're, you are crossing when you walk through that threshold, you're entering into another dimension. Like you're in another place where reality is very different. And that to me is just always a very creepy possibility. So I was just wondering in what way, because we had talked about earlier that we believe that what we're dealing with, uh, here is very much separate from the larger evil of the Stephen King universe. You know, we're dealing with the Native American burial ground and and these these kind of spirits and everything. But it does almost feel like the there are more worlds than these. You know, the Dark mm-hmm. Tower universe. Just the sense that uh, Lewis, when you go past the deadfall, you are entering into some kind of other dimension. Mm. And it never really ventures past the deadfall. It tries to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? I mean, that's. I mean, yeah. even when he's wandering around the pet cemetery looking at that tin thing. It still has to be behind those woods. Mm-hmm. He, he hears things, but yeah, it doesn't make yeah. his way back. Yeah, it's very freaky, and um, I love it. But yeah, and I guess like when he's back there, before I realized, because I had forgotten a lot about the Wendigo, like how it, like the actual thing that it was within this, and just the I, when I started reading about this massive uh, being walking, you know, in the distance and everything, and how tall it was, it, I immediately started thinking about the He Who Walks Among the Rose, and yeah, um, and then also I was just thinking about the mist, you know, because 
was so much yeah. mist and it describes the mist so much and <laughs> the monsters because there's a lot of mist yeah and it just like but also you know the the mist the monsters within it you know you don't really know what they are but they they have these long they're legs huge. or yeah they're huge and they go up and i was just like oh i wonder if this is a mist monster no i know i know he refers to ludlow later on in other books but there is no mention of the pet cemetery again i in other books i don't remember which one exactly but i remember being like oh pet cemetery has a deadfall yeah mm. yeah there was i was like kind of just poking around online and i found a few other connections that i just thought were pretty neat um do you so who's read insomnia here justo oh i've read it no there is actually a really creepy connection between pet cemetery and insomnia that i had forgotten but basically there's there's a villainous character in Insomnia, and at one point we enter into its evil lair. And um, uh, once you go in, Gage's shoe oh, that's is, right. is inside the lair of this uh, villain. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil Wars too much. Shoe? Uh, it's, it's the shoe and like, there was like, isn't there a sign or something? There's like something that says what it is. And it's basically like, like, uh, Gage's shoe he was wearing when he got hit by a van, like in Ludlow, Maine. His name is on it too. Yeah. yeah, His name is on it. I just remember that it's like explained and it's like super freaky. And I had forgotten about that until I started poking around. Um, there's a mention of, uh, the Wendigo in Desperation, but only just kind of as an aside. Yeah. They're talking about a Native American spirit. And then, um, uh, in oh, and on Insomnia as well. Uh, Ludlow is just mentioned because um, Lois, uh, the older older lady in it, she goes and plays bridge there. That makes maybe she was friends with uh, the Coastlaws and, and or Loma. the Crandalls or the Crandalls. Maybe yeah. that. Uh, maybe there's different timelines here. Okay. Ooh, getting a little crazy. <laughs> a little two three seven. I think uh, this is official. I got one more. Um, again, how old is Lewis in this? He's thirty one. Correct. Oh my god, he's thirty one, right? <laughs> Lewis yes. regrets that he has not flown a kite since he was 12, which would have been 19 years earlier. <laughs> and to be fair, it's a big the deal. last happy moment he's got is uh, flying that kite with Gage. And mm-hmm. hell, in the movie, it's the kite that leads to Gage's death. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did you know this book was actually written in the 1980s? Teen-80s. Oh, my God. <laughs> 1983 minus two, of course, <laughs> 19. Oh, another one. George Georgie Denver from It. Buried in the same cemetery as Gage. Yeah. <laughs> Pleasant Mount, View? Mount Hope Cemetery. Mm-hmm. I like it. I thought it was Pleasant View. Was um, that the town? I think that was the town. It's called it's Mount, Mount Hope, Hope Cemetery. Cemetery. It's in Pleasant, Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking about the Tobey Maguire, Reese Witherspoon film. Sure. <laughs> Love Pleasant View. Pleasant View. <laughs> Pleasant view. <laughs> Jeff it, it is a Pleasant View. <laughs> Pleasant viewing experience. Is, is there anything fair. else? I, I'm, I'm actually I tapped. think Mike has something, maybe. No, I got oh, nothing. Okay. This is this is it for me. I, I hope that we uh, one day come back to uh, Ludlow, Maine. I really do. Mm. Even if it's a short story. Just, Give me a short story. Can you just imagine, like, I mean, Ludlow is next to Salem's Lot and it's next to Derry and, like, all this shit is going on. You'd be like, get the fuck out of Maine right now. <laughs> there <laughs> are aliens in Haven. <laughs> That's why I kind of hope that Castle Rock, inf- you know, at least infers that there are other towns that have some sort of horrors to it. Do, do they mention it and they mention other and that places teaser they, in the teaser, so yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's open for that. That'd be great. Definitely. That'd be great. So... I think it's time to give our final thoughts on Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. So, let's give our final thoughts and clown nose ratings 
for Pet Cemetery might kick us off. Look, this is the third time I've read this book, and it won't be the last time I read this book. I think this is, out of all of King's works, you know, eventually we'll get to 112263, and I'll have similar thoughts to say about that book. But for me, this is easily his most timeless book. Mm -hmm. I think everyone is going to be able to relate to grief. (laughs) I think it's part of life. I think there are themes here that will be able to be applicable to any generation of Stephen King readers. I think that although cell phones would change this story (laughs) drastically, (laughs) I think for the most part, based on just how we've talked about the concepts of evil, I think that there's an inevitability to it that makes this story work for any type of time period, really. But there's something about the perspective of this book and whether it's Lewis or Rachel or Ellie or Judd that allows you to grapple and to look at the horror in certain levels of life where no matter what time you read this book, whether it's you're young, whether you're a 20-something, whether you're a 40-something, or whether you're like Judd, (laughs) 70-something years old and reading this book. Octogenarian. I think it is going to hit you in a different way every time. And it has. The, every, all, the, all three times I've read this book, it has hit me in certain ways. When I first read it, I related a little bit more to the idea of being a kid in a family and dealing with parents that were going through shit. Yeah. Reading it now, I saw myself a little bit as like Lewis and, you know, even as a, a little bit of Rachel. And I'm sure when I get older and I'm looking at the inevitability of death, I'm going to see it as Judd. And there's, for me, that is incredibly powerful writing, not to mention the things in this book and the stuff that he writes are things that are beyond comprehension that he was able to come up with some of these things that I just think there are some images in here that I, that still haunt me years and years later. And this book, even though I read it, probably, it's probably my sixth or seventh Stephen King book I read because I've, I've read The Shining before this. I read Carrie before this or even The Stand before this. But this is the one that always sticks with me. And it's something that whenever I think of whether it's ghosts or monsters or things in the woods, the, idea, the, the state of Maine itself, uh, I think about this book. And these are things that have stuck with me forever. They've informed my views on horror. And for me, it's, it, it's always going to be my favorite Stephen King book. Yeah. And with, we're talking specifically with horror. And for me, it's, it, it has to be a five-noser. Like, it's, yeah. it's a, this, is, this is the, if I could give you more, I would. I just, I love this book so much. This is one of my favorite books of all time. And, so uh, you, you have to give yeah. your rating in the proper format. And I give this five bright red <laughs> Pennywise clown noses. Um, and that's my final reading. I'll follow up. I agree with everything you said. It's, uh, this is also my third time reading it. It is a book that I think ages very well with you as you get older. Like I'm echoing what you just said. I felt like I looked at this story through a completely different lens being, you know, as the age that I am now, because I last read it, you know, probably about 15 years ago. And it's extremely powerful. And that's the thing was I found myself very emotional while reading it. But at the same time, it is by far to me the scariest mm-hmm. um, King book that I've that I've read. Of course, you know we're doing all these rereads as as the as the 
the train barrels on, maybe I'll just rediscover that maybe uh, Rose Matter is a lot scarier than I remember it being. Actually, I do remember a lot of scary stuff in Rose Matter. But uh, Pet Cemetery to me is a terrifying, terrifying novel because it really taps into sort of a like uh, sort of that old it's like old ancient terror that mm-hmm. really gets under my skin. The concept of modern people who are cockroach little human beings being a, at the whim of forces that are so much larger, so much more powerful than them. Uh, even though we spent a lot of time talking about the free will versus predestination kind of ideas. And I do think those are very prevalent here. And, but at the same time, I, I wish there, were, I, I want this to be more about free will because I care about the characters. And, and that to me is, more active and more interesting, but at the same time, there is something so um, crushing and despairing and bleak about the idea that we are, you know, at the ladder, just that we can be crushed so easily under the thumbs of these gods. And that to me is what this book really captures that and just the themes that we touched on earlier about grief and op- and how certain doors can't be closed once they're open. These are all things that I think I struggle with in my own life and that I'm scared of in my own life is, is uh, inviting something in that can bring, you know, cause I think I suffer from existential angst and terror a lot. Like I'll, I'll just wake up one day and feel like the world's falling on my head, even though I've got nothing to worry about. Mm. And it's just that sense of like, at any moment, everything can fall apart mm-hmm. at any moment, something in my life can die. And that's, something that I that I get scared of a lot and this book really taps into that yeah. fear and so it's terrifying and and, and this is probably uh, since we started the podcast one of maybe the first book that's like given me nightmares mm-hmm. like I've had trouble sleeping a little bit not like trouble sleeping but I've woken up some some from some freaky shit and I know that this book has been feeding into it so I give it five Bright, blood red, Ooh. Pennywise clown noses. It is my f- second five noser after rage. Just kidding. This is my <laughs> first. It's my first five noser. I get I get a little worked up talking about it because it's a book that I think um, just really affects me on a very kind of deep emotional level, and yeah. it's part of the reason that I love Stephen King as much as I do. Justo, I'll just read what I wrote here. I mean, again, I was. I enjoy talking about the free will versus predestination, the when to go sections, which I still think are extremely effective. And my argument was more, does it have to be there? Not does it work? Um, And what I've written here is I think that this is his saddest book. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's his grimmest book. I do think there's actually a grimmer book. Which one? Later on. It's a... Called Revival. Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. It's very grim. And um, I, I remember when you first read that and you texted everyone being like, Jesus. It's, <laughs> it's grim. Yeah. I think this is his scariest book for everything that I've mentioned and we've all mentioned over the past couple hours. I don't know what, what more can be said. I think the two of you have already said enough. And Mel, I'm sure you'll say some things too. And, you know, <laughs> I will. Thanks. Thanks. And <laughs> I think uh, you know, the fantastic characters, the build... And I mentioned earlier that short, short climax, but it mm-hmm. still works so well. Nothing else needs to be said. And I've got this written here. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Um, the dread that permeates a story is hard to shake. And like the best stories we read, the best movies we see, it sticks with you. Sometimes dead is better, but Pet Cemetery is always better than dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I give it, Da-da-da-da-da-da. and I wrote this down before you. I give it the old fiver. Yeah. Uh, five bright red Pennywise clown noses. I thought that was noses. a page number. Whoop, I gave it, nope, sorry, two bright red Pennywise. <laughs> five. Uh, it's, it's my second five noser of the podcast. My Same first here. was uh, The Dead Zone. Same here. Yeah, and I know there's some more to come, but this is easily the best since The Dead Zone and arguably is best of the decade, but we've got some more books to come. So. Yeah. Mel? 
I'll, I'll round us all out here. I agree it's his saddest book. For me, it's his scariest book. I think it's almost like he hit a vein of oil when you read this and compare it to a lot of the works that came directly before it. It's surprising how affecting it is. And you can almost feel, it, to me it feels like you. it's palpable that like, dark forces are operating through King mm-hmm. when you read this book. Yeah. Like an outside influence has clearly snuck into his life and he had to purge it and he wrote this book. Yeah. Um, and of course we see from his personal experience that a lot of these happenings did actually occur in his life. And knowing that makes it all the more like, emotional. Um, there's a part in the book where Lewis is looking down at Gage and it says his heart abruptly filling with a love for the boy so strong that it seemed almost dangerous. And that's such a bleak, grim lesson to take that because death is always in the room with us, it is dangerous to love something, Mm -hmm. but it's also how to live. Right. I mean, I think the lesson of the book, if there is one other than dead is better is to know that death is always in the room with you and to love Anyway, to the point where hopefully the value you hold for that love is stronger than the loss that you experience when the person is gone. I love this book so much. It scares me so badly. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever, ever, ever had to turn down the cover of a book before that I was reading just so I could go to sleep. (laughs) So it's a five bright red Pennywise clown Mm. noses for me. The first of mine on this podcast. Yes. and that makes it the yeah. first twenty noser, yeah, it really uh, is. in podcast history. No, no, I don't think Dead, Dead, Zone. Zone, Dead Zone was all five. Everyone gave five. Did we really? I would. I wouldn't have given the Dead Zone five. I wouldn't so. either. <laughs> you guys are a bunch of easy. When was the last time you read the Dead Zone? Um, like actually, many, many years. All right, ago. there you go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> no, no, Thank I'm totally much. kidding. I do <laughs> like the Dead Zone. I'm just, I'm just. I wanted this to be the first twenty noser. Sorry, it, you, you we have to go back. But I, I yeah, I don't know. I feel like somebody might have done four and a half just to be a contrarian. I can't remember. <laughs> I hope they did. Hey, know. Mac couldn't finish this book. He started it. Pet yeah, that's Cemetery. True. He and, said it was uh, only because he had seen the movie recently for the first time and that so much of it is the movie, the, especially mm-hmm. in the very beginning. And he decided, because he's also doing the next two episodes, which are going to be pretty long. So he just said, I might, might as well just jump ahead. I'm not going to be on the episode. Yeah. But uh, next week's episode, as you'll see, is... The we're not going to talk about the film today. We're going to focus an entire episode on both the Pet Cemetery movie, its sequel, Pet Cemetery Two, featuring Edward Furlong, and, and the documentary. <laughs> oh, and Clancy Brown, of course, and the documentary about the first Pet Cemetery, which I believe you can stream on Amazon Prime because I think Shutter. that's how we watched it. And Shutter. So catch up on those films. Tune in next week. We're going to be talking about them all. And our next book, so start reading now, is Eyes of the Dragon. And we'll be covering that. And some in... of you out there might be saying, why is Eyes of the Dragon? Just trust us. It makes sense. It's going to be Eyes of the Dragon. It's going to be Eyes of the Dragon. <laughs> Stay tuned on our socials. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We post a lot. We share all the news. Uh, it's the place to get all the Stephen King news and just the loser news because you know you want to keep up with us, too. Goodreads, too. Goodreads, too. Goodreads too. There's, we're everywhere. So stay tuned, guys. And in the meantime, long, long days, days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. Consequence Podcast Network.